500 years ago, Martin Luther was sent by his religious order to visit his superiors in Rome. The purpose? To try to iron out differences emerging between the communities of monks back in Germany. Things didn't work out so well. Recently, a Lutheran pastor from Virginia and her husband decided to try to recreate Luther's long pilgrimage as a way to try to boost ecumenical efforts to bridge differences between Protestants and Catholics today. Reverend Sarah Hinlicky Wilson and her husband, Andrew Wilson, trekked a thousand miles in 70 days from Erfurt in Germany all the way to Rome. And they join us today to tell us about their hike and why they did it. Sarah and Andrew, thanks for joining us. Thank you're welcome. You. Thank you. Now, Andrew, is a, you're a, a scholar in Reformation history, got your degree from Princeton's yes. Theological Seminary, and Sarah, you're working now in Strasbourg, France, at the Institute for Ecumenical Research. That's right. What is that? Oh, the Institute was founded in 1963, right in the wake of Vatican II, because the Catholic Church decided then to officially enter the ecumenical movement. And in response to that, the Lutherans thought it was time that they developed a research institute that would attend to the scholarly side of ecumenism. Ecumenism involves a lot more things like common service and mission, but this was to attend specifically to the doctrinal differences between Catholics and Lutherans and then the rest of the Christian world. So ever since then, the scholars at the Institute have been part of the ecumenical dialogues taking place between Lutherans and other churches around the world. So basically, you two are a couple of Lutherans that hope that Catholics and Lutherans can talk together better. Yes, that's correct. So ecumenism is is different Christian denominations having better dialogue and, and being able to, to worship compatibly? Well, the ultimate hope is that we can fulfill Jesus' prayer from John 17, hoping that his followers would be one the way he and the Father are one. That particular prayer really struck Christians to heart uh, about 100 years ago at the Edinburgh World Mission Conference when they realized that their mission witness was compromised because they were fighting with each other, competing for converts and slandering each other. Right. It reminds me that the word Catholic means universal. Does that apply to this? Absolutely. For the Catholic Church, the reason they joined the ecumenical movement is because they wanted to be really Catholic and involve everybody and include everybody in the meaning of the word church. So Catholic Church in the literal sense of we can be a universal church, we can work together. Exactly. So then why did you make this journey? You hiked a thousand miles from Germany in the footsteps of Martin Luther all the way to Rome. That's a lot of walking. <laughs> well, a lot of people think and begin by thinking that Martin Luther was a Catholic and then he became a Protestant. That leaves a lot of the story out, and uh, one of the things that we tried to explore with our feet is this time uh, before the famed date of 1517, when Luther was a very dutiful Augustinian friar, a hermit of St. Augustine, a very serious one, in fact, and he was, as an obedient friar, making a business trip of sorts, as well as a spiritual pilgrimage to Rome. Um, he did this as a part of his faith and entered into it with good faith. And it was, a, we hope, a meaningful experience to him. And we wanted to enter into this period of his life before the great schism that happened later on to think, what does this mean for Lutherans and Catholics today to think about Luther making a trip to Rome? Okay, so a couple of things. First of all, we hear the word friar and monk tossed around. A friar is they're, they're similar, but a friar is more service-minded and out in the world, whereas a monk would be more contemplative and in a cloister thinking and praying. Yes, that, that's correct. Uh, a monk traditionally is considered someone within the strain of the Benedictine order in the West, and they lived under the motto in Latin of ora et labora, prayer and work, okay. in a cloistered environment. And a friar was a movement that started as a missionary movement in the uh, 12th century, 
and involved taking vows and living in a community, but also doing one's work primarily not in the fields, but uh, in catechism and in missionary activity and care for the poor and the sick. So in the year 1510, Martin Luther hiked. He set out on this pilgrimage as a good, if struggling, Catholic, hoping to stoke his faith and commitment to his church. Yeah, I don't think you'd even want to say he was struggling at that point. He was quite happy. He'd been a, a friar for five years at that point. Uh, mm-hmm. There doesn't seem to be, from what we looked at, there doesn't seem to be much signs of struggle. Those were to, to evolve in the years to come. Okay, so what was the route that he took? The route that he took, we struggled finding one, both one that's historically accurate and one that we could physically and safely follow in 2010, and those were often not the same. Uh, We found uh, in our research for this trip that in 1500 in Nuremberg, uh, there was a printer by the name of Erhard Etzlaub who printed the Roma Pilgekata. It was printed and in color and um, it looked like a real map. And it has lists of all of the routes that go from Germany to Rome. So Luther was not trailblazing. There were established routes. Oh, no. (laughs) No, uh, and... And uh, what's interesting, when you look at this map, it's basically, from our perspective, trying to actually find a route, it's simply a kind of list of cities uh, from one city to the next. And so finding the way that Luther went, in some ways, is very easy because uh, from where he was in Erfurt, there was kind of one route south, or there were two different ones, and we know he took one. And so you just kind of follow the dotted line on this map down to Rome. But back then you would just walk on a road because it was exactly. shared with people and animals. And uh, today you, you don't walk on the Autobahn. No, exactly. <laughs> he, was, he would have had, I think, a fairly simple task of navigation. He simply would have went from one city to the next, from one way station to the next, from one Augustinian monastery or, or priory to the next. It would have been... a easy stages. In the modern day, we think travel is easier. Were there some ways where the the trek would have been easier for Luther than it was for you 500 years later? I think in finding his way and in the abundance of come-as-you-are facilities, those are the two main things. Uh, First, I've already mentioned, he simply would have followed the road from one town to the next and shared the main street with everybody. Uh, the other way that it would have been easier is that he could have simply showed up at basically any monastery and as a religious on, a, on an official business to Rome would have been welcomed and shown hospitality, probably donated. Uh, for us, traveling in the modern world, you can't really do that. Uh, we found you have to make reservations. <laughs> you have to call ahead. You have to and, email uh, ahead a monastery. You just can't knock on the door and say, we're a couple of Christian wayfarers. Do you have a bed? No, not all are open for hospitality to people who just show up. And the ones who are have lots of people who like to use them, so you're not right. assured of a room either. So it's just like with a hotel in that respect. Yeah. And, and our route, there wasn't they aren't evenly spaced. In some places, they're abundant. In other places, they've simply been abandoned. So mostly you camped then? Uh, well, <laughs> we, we had intended camping uh, a lot ahead of time, but we ended up not camping very much. In fact, only once for two reasons. One is that in Germany, wild camping, as we call it in the, in the United States, is in fact illegal in many places. Uh, so you can't just set up your tent wherever there's a piece of forest. The other one is that we uh, found that we really needed regular access to electricity. <laughs> and not only electricity, but a kind of space to do 
uh, mental work after we finished. Every day, Sarah had work to do and writing about our experience of the day, and I took every day between two and 300 pictures that I would have to process and okay. caption and upload. And all of those things required access to our modern communication networks, which was not conducive to a camping experience. I, I should add the third reason that we didn't camp is that we had appallingly bad weather mm. <laughs> for our first three and a half weeks in Germany. We had rain at the first 21 out of 25 days. Oh, no. Um, and, and singularly cold, too. I mean, everyone we yeah. met said this is the coldest summer that they could remember. So yeah. the first week we left on August 22nd, we weren't even didn't even have warm enough clothes because we just assumed it would be nice and warm and toasty in August still. And mm. we were quite wrong about that. So having real shelter in the evening was definitely desirable. Sarah and Andrew, when you were doing this hike, how would you compare the actual physical hiking experience, apart from weather, in the German stretch compared to the Italian stretch? Um, Germany is a culture that really values hiking and also biking. And so they have tremendous numbers of beautiful walking trails and biking trails everywhere. It's kind of hard to find information about them ahead of time. They don't seem to have a good sort of internet resource you can go to to find out about these. Um, so we often discovered them as we went and were just delighted at how pleasant it was to walk through there. Uh, in Italy, it's quite different. Italy truly is the land of the automobile, um, maybe even more than the U.S. is. We heard that there are more automobiles than people in Italy, and we would believe that. Mm -hmm. um, there were many places where there weren't even sidewalks, or we would uh, come to the edge of a town, you'd see the sign indicating the beginning of the next town, and the sidewalk would simply stop. <laughs> and you'd mm. walk through this municipality that, for whatever reason, did not care for sidewalks. So you'd get to the next town, and the sidewalk would start up again. So we spent a lot of time, much more time in Italy, walking on the edges of highways, sometimes without shoulders, sometimes jumping over the guardrail or leaning over the edge while the cars sped by us, you know, praying more than we ever had in our lives that we would survive the, the physical act of walking all the way to Rome. But there's actually the Via Francigena, right, in Italy, which is a historic <laughs> pilgrimage route. Well, yes. I However, guess in, on paper, but not on trail, huh? Well, I would say about two-thirds of it is uh, probably you know, has sidewalks or is mountain trails, especially through the Apennines. It was quite nice there. Or very minor roads with little traffic. But at least a third of it was highway, very busy streets. Um, I mean, sometimes I would just become furious at where this official route was leading pedestrians, which was mm. just outrageously dangerous. So yes, it's it's an ancient route, but you know, all the all the modern roads, the paved roads for cars, they go over ancient routes because those are the obvious places to pave. There's already an established place there. Unless I think you take a real deliberate governmental decision to preserve pedestrian ways, they simply vanish. And unless you have a culture that really demands it, like German culture does, there's no reason for them to be there. Right. Sarah and Andrew, you hiked a thousand miles. Uh, just from a hiking point of view, what was the most enjoyable stretch of your trek? Uh, from Chiavenna to Dacio, from the foot of the Alps to the top of Lake Como. Beautiful walk through chestnut forests on an old road and beautiful views of the ridiculously steep Alps. Oh, I know that spot, coming out of the Alps to the lakes of northern Italy. And then you said you hopped mm -hmm. on a boat to go the length of Lake Como, and then you said, and that wasn't cheating because Martin Luther did the same thing? <laughs> as far as we know. Okay, that's good. And then when you did the hike, uh, I always think of all the crops and the vegetation you pass. But you commented that uh, that would have been a different landscape in Luther's time. Uh, yeah, many of the crops that are common, the chief of which is corn, didn't exist in Luther's day. Uh, in, in Europe. 
in Europe. They didn't right. exist. And other things that are major crops uh, like potatoes and tomatoes. New world crops pretty much dominate a lot of the agricultural area in Europe then. That's correct. Absolutely dominate, yeah. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. We're speaking with Reverend Sarah Hinlicky wilson and her husband, Andrew Wilson, who hiked the, the pilgrimage route of Martin Luther on the 500th anniversary of this hike, a thousand miles from Germany to Rome. Gary's on the phone in Georgetown, Texas. Gary, thanks for your call. Hello, Rick and Andrew and Sarah. I am very impressed by the pilgrimage that you have made, and uh, it must have been a wonderful experience for you. And I'm just wondering if there are people in Germany today who are as interested in making this pilgrimage and hoping to foster reconciliation as you two have done. Yes, in fact, we know there are a handful of Germans who have already taken this pilgrimage. They didn't do it in a public fashion as we did or with a blog or for ecumenical purposes. But uh, we did find a little book called In the Footsteps of Martin Luther, and the author did retrace the steps and another person who commented on our blog said he did it as well. There's also within Germany, I think, a 300-kilometer kind of Luther trail for uh, Protestants to do pilgrimages there, too. Um, generally, we find that Europeans are quite positive towards ecumenism. It's interesting. In Europe, ecumenism is much more closely tied to peacekeeping because they have lived with the legacy of religious war, whereas in the U.S., um, ecumenism has more to do with market forces. So there's a very different kind of spirit in which the two continents engage in the ecumenical task. That's great. I'm, I'm glad that the, uh, the Europeans themselves are interested in reconciliation. It's been very difficult in Germany over the centuries to, uh, you know, but with the Protestant Reformation, and then, you know, a lot of uh, Christians accommodated with, uh, with Nazism uh, during the Second World War. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of rifts that need to be healed. A lot, a lot. But they, I mean, our impression is quite positive. They, they seem to care. There are a lot of people who are involved in it from a, a lay to a clerical level. I think this 500th anniversary of the Reformation will be a great opportunity to do some constructive things in that regard. I would hope so anyways. I would hope so too. Thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. And Neville's on the line from Victoria in British Columbia. Neville, thanks for your call. Hello, Rick. How are you doing? Great. Um, what's your connection with this uh, Martin Luther trek? Well, what, I, I was very curious because my wife and I uh, walked the Via Branchigina in 2008. We walked it from Switzerland to Rome. So I was kind of curious about how Sarah and Andrew fared um, walking um, at least parts of the same route. They walked, obviously, from Pavia to Rome on the Via Francigena. And I heard, uh, you know, I've heard some of their firsthand experiences, because uh, like Andrew and Sarah, we had to kind of you know, create our own map books and old guidebooks to, to do the route, because it wasn't documented. So I just was, you know, wanted to kind of get a, a kind of firsthand account of how they went through the planning process of actually, you know, organizing the trip and actually planning and, and trying to determine the route and what, you know, did they use any guidebooks? You know, we experienced a lot of things that you've already suggested in terms of the trail and how some places there was a trail and some places there wasn't a trail. Um, and we dealt, you know, with busy roads at, at different times. So I just wanted to get your kind of firsthand experience of how you kind of planned for this trip and what kind of resources used to kind of, you know, map out the route itself. Oh, yeah, thanks, Neville. In fact, uh, I remember you. Uh, you made a comment on our blog, and uh, thank you very much for doing that. You're welcome. For planning, we used um, three different printed guides. One was put out by Pilgrim Press. It was by uh, Paul Oh, Paul Chin, yes. Yeah, Paul yes. Chin. And um, that was extremely helpful. 
And we also had a guide in German that helped us a little bit. And we also paid to join the Via Francigena Society in, in France, where we live. And we were provided with some kind of up-to-date information about lodging from them. For actual navigation on the field, since we were doing this trip in a 2010 style with complete with a smartphone with GPS capabilities, I actually downloaded and was able to download from the Italian Ministry of Culture a set of GPS tracks. So for Pretty much far. of the trip, I, I navigated by following these GPS tracks. Now, I have to say that there's no central authority controlling the Via Francigena, and so um, you get conflicting information in some sections by the Italian Ministry of Culture tells you one thing, and the Chin guide tells you another, the German guide says one thing, and then at one point, we were in, we just entered Lazio, this Italian comes zooming up to us, he saw us in the distance, we were walking on this very busy highway, and he introduced himself as Massimiliano, he was the director, or had promoted himself as the director of the Via Francigena in Lazio, and he gave us his own set of guidebooks. Uh, right. And he told us, no, 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 don't follow that one. That That's dangerous. And so, that we were very fortunati to have <laughs> met him and get these real guidebooks. Yes. He showed us his own sign, which he had used to mark the route in Lazio, and said, follow this one. This one will get you to St. Peter's in Rome. So Neville and Andrew and Sarah, you've hiked all the way from, in Neville's case, Switzerland, and in your case, uh, Germany. You finally get to Rome, as Martin Luther did. What is the practice when you come into Rome as a pilgrim, and, and what is sort of the, the culmination of your pilgrimage? Well, for the Via Francigena, the destination is definitely St. Peter's Square in Rome, the Vatican. Um, in Luther's time, the proper thing would, to do would be to take a pilgrimage within the city through the seven historic churches, starting at St. Paul's outside the walls. You would also have seen St. Peter's, which was just in the early stages of being rebuilt in 1510. St. John Lateran, St. Mary Magdalene, a couple other churches. Luther had four weeks, and he did everything there was for a pilgrim to do in Rome. We had about two and a half days, so we had to be a little more efficient in our choices. So we walked all the way through Rome to the south end to St. Paul's outside the walls, and that was our final destination point. Uh, visited there first, and then the next day we went back up to St. Peter's and visited theirs as well. For us, that was a deliberate decision because we couldn't recreate Luther's historic visit to Rome, which took four weeks. We decided to do this as a deliberately ecumenical conclusion to our pilgrimage. St. Paul is often claimed by Lutherans and other Protestants as their symbol or their figure. Um, and St. Peter is, for Catholics, obviously, being the first pope. And so we thought visiting the tombs of these two apostles, who were famous for having a big disagreement that's recorded in the New Testament, mainly in Acts and Galatians. And yet these, these two uh, apostles who had some differences of opinion were both martyrs for Christ. They gave their lives both in Rome. They're both buried in Rome. They're both writers and figures in the New Testament. So we thought, symbolically, we wanted to conclude by paying homage at these two places as a kind of symbolic invitation for Lutherans and Catholics to be reconciled in their witness to Christ, just as Peter and Paul were. Fitting with your ecumenical theme, my understanding in Rome is that uh, there's sort of two overlays. All the tourists go there and they have their maps. And pilgrims, historically, have seen different obelisks and domes of churches as sort of markers as they go through all of these um, visits that are part of their ritual. Do you know anything about that where there's... Um, architectural and, and monumental markers that help guide pilgrims around Rome? 
as you're walking through the city, you do see those kinds of things, and you're right, there are different layers. We actually, we didn't even look into that before we went because we had our goals of St. Paul's outside the walls and St. Peter's. But it is true that within the city itself, there are things that if you don't have an eye to see, you won't see them. Did you climb the Scala Santa, the Holy Steps? Uh, we didn't climb it. We did visit it. Uh, that is a famous site for Luther that he remembered later in his life. Just so people know, these are the, these are the steps that Constantine's mother brought back from the Holy Land, right? That were the steps of Pontius Pilate's place. And Jesus would have climbed them on the day that he was condemned. And today, pilgrims climb them on their knees and get to the top. And, and in the Middle Ages, at the top of the steps was the Holy of Holies, the sanctuary where they kept the most precious of all the relics. And this must have been like the, the awes of anybody who was making a medieval pilgrimage to Rome. Yes, uh, it was. And in, in the Middle Ages, actually, they were in a different place than they are now. They would have been behind St. John Lateran. Wasn't that, a, wasn't that a breakthrough for Martin Luther? I read that he climbed the Holy Steps and he got up to the top and he just kind of thought, does this even make any sense? Uh, it's something not, not quite like that, but he did do that. You could get a full plenary indulgence um, if you climb at the Scala Santa. And so he was doing it on behalf of his dead grandfather, Heine. And he recalls many years later that when he got to the top of praying his way up on his knees, he had this momentary flicker of doubt in which he said to himself, but who knows if this is even true? But it seems, as far as we can tell, he suppressed that thought uh, for you know a good six or seven years before it came back in full force in the 95 Theses. Uh, but we were looking to see if we could find seeds of the future reformer, and that is the only one we found in this Martin Luther of 1510. Wow. So it took him seven years for all of his um, ideas to sort of come to fruition when he was bold enough then to symbolically kick off the Reformation by naming those 95 points for discussion under the walls of that building where he was working as a friar. Exactly. And that is what we're approaching, is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. After making this hike from Erfurt to Rome, what is your hope on how we can celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation? Well, you know, Rick, for, for the past 500 years, uh, less so in the last 50, but it's still there, Lutherans and Catholics have been defining themselves against one another. You can look back and see how in their writings and in their decisions, they've deliberately chosen to emphasize things at the expense of the other or to lift up things that they have that the other one didn't. And so it's in a strange way we've lived in this kind of mutually parasitic relationship with one another where we had to deny our commonalities and overemphasize our differences. I think what I would like to see happen is now in a state of uh, greater agreement where we've had 50 years now to talk together and discover we're not quite as far apart as we thought we were, I'd like to see us look back over our history together and with a really bold and honest look say, where did we do wrong? Where did we provoke the other to go somewhere that they didn't really need to do? How did our political decisions, which were a huge part of the Reformation, force the hand of the theologians to say something that maybe they would not have said? Um, I think it's only by taking an honest look at our history, fessing up where we did wrong, asking for forgiveness. Uh, I think that will be the way towards real reconciliation. But I think it has to come with a real honest appraisal of the past. There's already a precedent set for this last summer at the Assembly of the Lutheran World Federation, which is a worldwide fellowship of Lutherans. There was a decision made based on an extended project with Mennonites, who are heirs of 16th century Anabaptists, to look into the history of how Lutherans promoted um, the abuse, political abuse of Anabaptists. 
And when the Lutherans were able to recognize this, they publicly as a church asked for forgiveness of the Mennonites for what we did to their 16th century ancestors. Uh, what our ancestors did to their ancestors. And in return, the Mennonites issued a full declaration of pardon and joy in our reconciliation. I was there. It was one of the most amazing things I've ever witnessed in my life. And uh, it is perhaps an optimistic dream, but I would love to see the same thing happen in 1517, where Lutherans and Catholics can stand up and say, here's what we did wrong, and we are sorry. And the other ones say, we hear your apology, and we forgive you. And I would imagine Martin Luther would think the same thing today, looking at the uh, the opportunity that Vatican II is that Sarah, what you mentioned fifty years ago is that is that the opening given by Vatican II? Exactly. The Catholic Church officially entered the ecumenical movement with the decree on ecumenism during the Second Vatican Council. Wow. So this is very hopeful, and it's uh, quite inspirational for you to retrace these steps five hundred years later. You've got a a very good uh, website at hereiwalk.org, hereiwalk.org, where people can follow more details about the the pilgrimage that Reverend Sarah Hinlecky Wilson and Andrew Wilson made, retracing the steps of Martin Luther 500 years later. Sarah and Andrew, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. It's Thank you. You're delight. welcome. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours all over Europe, one small group at a time. This year, we're featuring tours of Germany, Austria and Switzerland, Berlin, Prague and Vienna, and the heart of Belgium and Holland. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com. <laughs>